Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. reproducing some of the symposia and plenary sessions from the Society for Range Management's 2020 annual meeting and training in Denver for the podcast. These were recorded live on February 17 through 20. I selected sessions in consultation with the meeting and technical program chairs that we believed would be widely applicable and that would not depend heavily on the listener being able to see the accompanying slideshow with photographs and charts. With the speaker's permissions, we will provide contact information for each speaker so that you can request additional information from them directly if you are especially interested in their topic. This episode is from a symposium titled Adaptive Management of Burned Rangelands, Challenges and Opportunities for its Co-Production by Land Agency Staff and Scientists. Like many other rangelands worldwide, the sagebrush steppe of the western United States has been greatly impacted by wildfire and invasive plants. Efforts to restore desirable native species and ecosystem function are challenging and are frequently unsuccessful. Increasingly, land managers recognize the need to practice adaptive management after a burn at both the project and regional scales. Acting on this recognition requires managers and scientists to develop a shared understanding of their roles and the challenges and opportunities they experience at each step in the adaptive management process. The presentations in this symposium focus on how science for informing adaptive management of public lands is being co-produced by scientists and managers uh, regarding the objectives of reducing exotic annual grasses, increasing desirable perennial plant communities and stemming the increase of wildfire in the sagebrush steppe. Laura Van Riper, the Bureau of Land Management's National Science Advisor, describes land agency perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for co-producing science in sagebrush steppe landscapes. Next, Matt Germino, a research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, presents lessons learned by a diverse team of public resource managers, landowners, and federal and university researchers who carefully coordinated post-fire management to maximize opportunities for research and learning on the 2015 Soto wildfire in Idaho. They have five years of monitoring, 2,500 plots distributed across nearly 300,000 acres of varied terrain, ecological condition, and management treatments, and these are providing an unparalleled learning laboratory from which they have learned already some key lessons on adaptive management. Then USGS research ecologist David Pilliad will describe the co-production process of the land treatment exploration tool and the land treatment digital library that supplies the data to the tool. The land treatment digital library is a catalog of information about past treatments on public lands administered by the BLM, especially on burned areas. The land treatment exploration tool is designed for resource managers to use when planning land treatments. 
It provides useful summaries of environmental characteristics of plant treatment areas and facilitates adaptive management practices by comparing those characteristics to other similar treatments within a specified distance or area of interest. Finally, Paul Stebline, Wildland Fire Science Coordinator for the USGS, then moderates a discussion session that explores needs, barriers, and opportunities for improving information flow. All right. Well, my name is Laura Van Raper, and for the past 20 years, I've worked with the VLM as a social scientist and a conflict resolution specialist, and I've led a number of um, multi-stakeholder processes across the West. For the past five years, I've been working um, almost exclusively in Nevada, facilitating a number of efforts there. One in particular is the results-oriented grazing for Ecological Resilience Group, which we call Roger for short, because it's a mouthful. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about that um, in a minute. So, as pretty much all of you know, some of the most uh, controversial and politicized debates in the United States concern the management of natural resources. The issues surrounding wildfire and invasives in sagebrush ecosystems are no different, and they fall into the category of what I and others call wicked problems. First, they're technically and scientifically complex. We don't have all the information we need to address these issues. There's a lot of misinformation and competing information out there, and there's not equal access to good information. Although we frequently talk about the importance of interagency and interdisciplinary communication and coordination, like Leif said, it's often the exception rather than the norm. Uh, research scientists, technical specialists, and managers from different agencies and organizations, they kind of tend to work in silos and they often talk past each other because they have different values, cultures, perspectives, and occupational jargon. And furthermore, local and experimental or experiential and indigenous knowledge is often not given the same kind of legitimacy in science-based discussions. Second, there's legal and regulatory complexity and uncertainty. Wildfire and invasives, like most other ecosystem processes, don't recognize jurisdictional boundaries on the map. However, when it comes to managing them, we're often constrained by a conflicting myriad of laws, regulations, policies, procedures, funding streams, etc that govern, govern private, state, and federal land, which make it extremely difficult to navigate and coordinate cross-boundary efforts. And furthermore, wildfires in the sagebrush sea often have a disparate impact on sparsely populated rural communities that often have limited political power, access to resources, and information. Oh, I've got this clicker. Third, there's a strong desire for engagement from those who affect and are affected by the outcomes of the wildfire invasive cycle, and these issues are marked by diverse and often competing values. Across different groups, there are markedly different but strongly held beliefs, opinions, and emotions about wildfire, prescribed fire, native versus non-native seed, the use of herbicides, grazing as a management tool, opinion juniper removal, and a host of other issues. And last, these are interdisciplinary or interdependent problems that cannot be solved in relative isolation from one another. And they have a range of alternative solutions, each with different implications for people and resources. And so while science can inform these decisions, like it can speak 
to the level of uncertainty, the trade-offs, the benefits, the risks and costs associated with different options, it alone can't and really shouldn't determine what is socially, politically, or economically feasible or acceptable. So as most of you know, and as Leif talked about, collaborative adaptive management processes have been broadly promoted as promising ways to deal with complex and contentious natural resource issues or wicked problems. Many argue that creating well-structured, transparent, and collaborative processes is as important to effective decision-making as having good information and science and tools. Research and experience has shown that time and time again, the effective solution for issues where agreement on values and the state of knowledge are both low, i.e. wicked problems, uh, tend to arise from working of experts, both scientific and regulatory experts and stakeholders, who in addition to using technically correct information, engage in processes to address the human and social dimension of these issues as well. When this type of dialogue and deliberation is not just an activity, but it's an ongoing, uh, continuous activity. It helps build trust and legitimacy for public action and decisions because it builds familiarity with the issues, the diversity of viewpoints, and the complexity of social and ecological systems involved. And so although in the last slide I talked about the need to bring quote unquote experts and stakeholders together, I wanted to caveat that with this quote as a reminder that really all participants bring useful knowledge and experience to the table. And the key is to have a well-designed and implemented collaborative adaptive management process so that participants can learn from all the different kinds of knowledge. This really is just another slide or another way of displaying the fact that natural resource management approaches kind of fall along a continuum defined by the level of collaboration and stakeholder engagement that's required to effectively address the complexity and uncertainty of the issues at hand. One of the most important components of collaborative adaptive management is the co-production of knowledge. One way to do that is through joint fact-finding, which refers to efforts to get all the various parties together, preferably on the ground, to discuss conditions and collect information in an effort to deal with the scientific and technical uncertainty and complexity as they define the problems and the options for moving forward. And it's also very useful in the implementation, monitoring, assessment, and adjustment phases of adaptive management. Joint fact-finding helps, like it says on the slide, level the playing field and creates a shared knowledge base. It helps resolve uncertainty. It strengthens relationships between people. It enriches uh, studies. They become more relevant, and the information is more likely to be used because it's understandable to diverse individuals and seen as legitimate, believable, and trusted. All right, so now I'm gonna switch gears and talk a little bit about Roger. There are handouts up here that uh, give a little bit more explanation than I'm gonna be able to give about the group. But the group formed in uh, 2016 when the Fish and Wildlife Service brought together some agency partners and ranchers who had been involved in the Partners for Conservation program. Those folks were quickly joined by ranchers from some of the other longstanding collaborative efforts in Nevada, like the Shoe Soul Group and the uh, Stewardship Alliance of Northeast Elko County. And the group has continued to grow and evolve from there. And although the effort is not focused on fire per se, you know, everyone knows that the wildfire invasive cycle is a primary threat to functioning sagebrush ecosystems. And so there are concerted efforts 
being made by that group to uh, address it. Okay, so the purpose and the function of uh, this rancher-led collaborative are on the screen. It's also on the handout, but what I really wanted to point out is that in my mind, I see Roger as kind of a bridging organization that occupies a space between science, policy, and management and helps facilitate trust and relationship building, learning, translation, conflict resolution, and knowledge co-production with, with the ultimate goal of collective action. There are a number of parties involved in Roger. There's ranchers, agency managers, research scientists, technical specialists, and other stakeholders, a lot of whom are listed here. It's important to note that there's not just a wide array of horizontal linkages in Roger, but there are also really strong vertical linkages um, insofar as that there are local, state, regional, and national staff and decision makers from various agencies that participate in different ways with the group as well, and that's actually pretty unique. All right, so now I'm gonna um, highlight some of the different efforts that Roger, various Roger work groups are involved in in terms of wildfire and invasives, um, both in terms of pre and post burn. Okay, so first of all, two Roger ranchers are currently implementing the BLM's National Targeted Grazing for Fuel Reduction Demonstration Project out of the Elko District. The purpose of this is to use grazing to reduce fine fuels in areas that have high fire frequency and as a result is currently dominated by invasive, you know, non-native cheatgrass. Grazing management is meant to be adaptive with cattle management altered as needed using temporary fencing, herding, water halls, supplements, and, and whatever else. The USDA's Agricultural Research Service has designed and implemented a rigorous monitoring protocol for each demo. The ARS completes pre and post grazing or collects pre and post grazing data from replicated studies at each site and coordinates with both the district and the permittees and shares information with the, the targeted work group, targeted grazing work group that exists and more broadly. In terms of adaptive management in 2018, which was the first year that it was implemented, the demos generally did not meet the fuel height reduction targets for a variety of reasons, like there was weather patterns, the grazing started late, there was a lot of cheatgrass that carried over from 2017. And so in response to this, the TS Ranch, which is one of the demos, um, applied dormant season grazing as a way to reduce some of the standing residual cheatgrass during the winter of 2018-2019, and that had um, that proved promising. And so moving forward, the targeted grazing demos will be implementing both dormant seasoning and spring grazing um, at, for the remainder of the program, you know, obviously as conditions allow. From an outcome standpoint though, um, like I said, it started in spring of 2018. Approximately 2,000 head of cattle were released for about three weeks to graze the fuel break on the TS Ranch. The Boulder Creek fire started late morning, July 16th of 2018 at the area of the targeted grazing fuel break off of I-80. And as you can see from the photo, the targeted grazing and trailing worked to stop and hold the fire. It was held at only 1,028 acres in an area that's accessible to large intense fires. And as a result, it protected previous emergency stabilization and rehabilitation efforts that had been put in place to protect sage grouse after past fires. Sorry, I need a drink. All right, so second, 
I want to talk a little bit about what happened after the 2018 Martin fire, which was the largest in Nevada history at over 440,000 acres. Because relationships were built and discussions and the development of a common understanding and vision around critical topics had occurred as part of Roger well before this crisis, the Martin Fire East coordination team was able to quickly form and you know, get to work once the fire was out. This is a, was a diverse group of like 15 or so agency managers, research scientists, technical specialists, ranchers and other stakeholders from the BLM, University of Nevada, Reno, Fish and Wildlife Service, Nevada Department of Wildlife, uh, NRCS, Department of Agriculture, NASA, the Nature Conservancy, and others. So the team developed a really uh, innovative and strategic ESR plan that was informed by ecological site descriptions, site potentials, and disturbance response groups that have been developed through Tamsin Stringham's lab at the University of Nevada, Reno, in, in partnership with the Natural Resource Conservation Service with Patty and others. The use of ESDs and DRGs allowed for a more thoughtful and detailed ESR planning and the use of resources. So for instance, there was a very clear elevated cheatgrass cover at the southern boundary of that map. And so there was this collective notion by the team that they needed to be very aggressive about reseeding to stop the encroachment of cheatgrass into areas in the desert where it previously didn't exist. So when you look at the bottom of the map, you see like purple and tan and up the west side, you see that green. That was all meant to be a um, basically a, a, a large green strip or as people jokingly called it the, uh, the, the Great Wall of Crested Wheatgrass. Um, and so, but further north, where there was perennial grass cover and less shrub cover, it was thought that it would not burn as hot there, and native grasses would be able to recover naturally, which would save money in seeding, as well as provide better sage-grouse habitat in the future by not just, you know, planting crested wheatgrass everywhere. So there's a lot of strategic thought put into that. The team also developed post-fire grazing agreements using some of the templates out of the BLM office in Idaho. In the past, burned pastures were automatically closed to grazing for two years, um, when at times actually some amount of strategic grazing could potentially not only help combat cheatgrass invasion, but could also potentially help some preferred species establish. And so uh, the agreement process was used to authorize some grazing in the spring of 2019 uh, in areas that were treated with aerial herbicide in 2018. Okay, so monitoring. So, you, you know, you have implementation monitoring. Did you do what you said you were going to do? And effectiveness monitoring, like, did it work? So from an implementation monitoring standpoint, um, they were not able to do everything they had hoped to do. The seeding efforts got off to a rough start. Uh, they were able to complete the herbicide treatments in fall of 2018, and NDAO, Department of Wildlife, was able to uh, complete over 70,000 acres of aerial seeding in January of 2019, but the drill seeding for the, the Great Wall was, wasn't completed due to funding, um, the furlough, and weather. And so, uh, in, and then in terms of effectiveness monitoring, in June of 2018, they did a field tour, uh, and they looked at what had been done, the treatments that had been completed in 2018, uh, and they saw that the 2018 herbicide treatments were to control cheatgrass were very effective. And even though um, they were not able to complete the drill seeding, the lower areas looked pretty good. That's that decent looking picture. 
on my right. Um, but ultimately, the vegetation regrowth in areas that were moderately or severely burned was very minimal, kind of creating vast areas of blowing dust. Um, and so they followed that tour with an aerial uh, uh, tour as well, basically, and found similar conditions over the extent of the areas that were moderately or severely burned. And so from an adaptive management standpoint, they decided, the group, the team decided to shift away from seeding the green strip um, and instead to focus on stabilizing these moderately and severely burned sites, which are the basically the blue and the purple up there, as well as to continue to complete some smaller green strips, which are the green lines on that top um, photo. And they're also continuing to discuss uh, renewing a 2020 grazing agreement that would allow uh, grazing to occur as a treatment to minimize cheatgrass growth in conjunction with the herbicide treatment in areas that um, were not seeded. Am I right on time? Okay. Um, I forgot to bring my stopwatch up here. Okay, third, Roger Ranchers are engaged, a bunch of them actually, are engaged in BLM's national outcome-based grazing demos. One in particular, the Horseshoe and Scott's Gulch allotment, is focused specifically on trying to break the wildfire cheatgrass cycle. Both of these allotments have been severely impacted by wildfire over the last 20 years, which has led to a dominance of cheatgrass and other invasive annual plants in both allotments and a reduction in native perennial grasses and shrubs. The purpose of this demo is to renew a grazing permit that facilitates flexible and effective grazing management to target cheatgrass at the appropriate times of the year to assist in the control of the invasive and increase desirable species in the area. Seeding of non-natives may also be required to establish perennial grasses back into the system. The intent really is to get the landscape in better condition than it is today. Less acres in annual grass and an increase in perennial bunch grass. It's likely that it'll be you know, non-native perennial bunch grass first and then hopefully over time, maybe a long time, um, that will transition to more perennial grass species as well. And this will not only improve forage and wildlife habitat, but it essentially creates a 40,000 acre green strip to protect intact sage grouse habitat from future fires. This plan draws heavily on state and transition models that exist, again, thanks to University of Nevada, Reno and NRCS for all the ecological states within a disturbance response group. I'm not gonna go into defining all these terms because I assume you guys know, but if you don't, we can do that after. Uh, but in short, these models explain the ecological causes or rationale for adaptive management and the recognition that as ecological dynamics change on a given piece of ground uh, due to a variety of factors, you also be, should be changing management on those landscapes as well. Uh, the, for management purposes, both the Horseshoe and the Scotts Gulch allotments have been divided into existing states with a large percentage of those states in that annual state, kind of like a cheatgrass monoculture. And again, like I said, the objective is to manage for that with flexible dates and AUMs and set targets for levels of use. Once that state moves to another state, likely through the use of seeding, the grazing management and monitoring will adapt to reflect the needs and objectives of the new state. Uh, a key component of this demo is the emphasis on cooperation and communication between permittees, 
land management agencies, research scientists, and others during the development, implementation, monitoring, and adaptive management phase process, and, and really recognizing the role that the permittee plays in its success. Um, in terms of monitoring, permittee will do annual monitoring like utilization, production, and is uh, experimenting quite a bit with the use of remote sensing to develop cover maps and um, dry residual matter maps. And the BLM will focus on landscape level uh, monitoring, repeating aim, and, and other things every five years. Adaptive management-wise, they will have you know, annual operating meetings to re re uh, review the results of implementation and the short and long-term effectiveness monitoring and adjust management as needed. Okay, the last thing I wanna talk about is um, that Roger has also convened a science team made up of rangeland ecologists, folks from Tamsin Stringham's lab out of the University of Nevada, Reno, uh, sage-grouse habitat biologists out of Pete Coates' lab from the uh, USGS, and remote sensing specialists out of Colin Homer's lab, also from USGS. And they're working along with various agency partners, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, Endow, and others, as well as ranchers to develop, uh, well, they've already developed it, but now they're implementing a multi-year research project that's designed to crosswalk on-the-ground data and remote sensing models to develop a spatially explicit vegetation map for the Great Basin. Essentially, the focus of this research project is to determine how well we can map vegetative states and their extent at a large scale using remote sensing, and how well does this play with you know, what we're finding in terms of on-the-ground data. It will help us understand uh, uh, ecological site description and disturbance response group distribution across the landscape, and what information we need for successful management at each state, because like I said earlier, it'll be different depending on what state you're in. This will allow for more precise adaptive management given this large-scale spatial understanding of the issue by folks who are not on the ground every day. Assuming the team is able to develop the final project, because you know it kind of builds on each other, the map, the plan is to test and use it as a tool for conservation planning as well as for monitoring the results of outcome-based grazing actions. And two of the Roger outcome-based grazing demos are the study sites for this research project. Um, in terms of issues related to wildfire and invasives, the conservation planning tool will help determine landscape trends, predict threats, determine priority areas for pre-fire treatments, and help, again, inform post-fire ESR plans. And to date, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service and BLM have contributed uh, over $700,000 to the completion of that research project. And I have folks in the room who know way more about all these things that I've talked about than me. So if you have specific questions, I will call my lifelines to answer them. And I'd like to um, start this talk by adding a little bit onto what Leaf described about the challenges of post-fire restoration. So he noted to you that the, in general, over many decades of very intensive and extensive management intervention after wildfire that, um, well, we haven't quite seen the results that everybody had hoped for. But to me, and hopefully to you, that's not surprising, considering some things like um, the main way, the main program that supports and guides the uh, management response to wildfires. It's called the, the National Emergency Stabilization 
and Rehabilitation Program, or ESR for short. Um, up until about five years ago, the managers had 21 days after a fire was contained to write a proposal that included a natural resource assessment of how they were going to respond to the treatment, to the wildfire. If funded, typically the managers were given about a year to invest those, um, those dollars and the time and effort into treatments. And then at best, they were given up to three years to do some monitoring, which happened in various ways from not much monitoring at all to maybe a few dozen plots across the landscape. And if you consider that, fi that fires are driven primarily by wetting and drought cycles, and that drought usually pre prevails after a fire, if you only had one year to intervene, what are your chances of hitting a good window of adequate temperature and moisture? Not so good. And then furthermore, is three years of assessment adequate for evaluating the recovery of slow-growing desert species? Probably not, but these constraints were, um, they were just part of the administrative system under which the managers operate. Furthermore, um, persistent invasions by exotic annual grasses and the presence of some of the stressors which probably um, you know, affect fire cycles um, still occur on the landscape and th that affects seeding success, for example. As uh, Leif mentioned, oftentimes, historically, the management response was conducted by a few individuals in a particular field or district office and wasn't very broad-based in terms of involving partners. These are all things that um, are, seem somewhat easy to change and they were changed for the first time really using the SOTA wildfire response. Most importantly for my mind, the management responses to these large wildfires are in a way some of the grandest experiments that are conducted in our sagebrush steppe rangelands. That's because we don't have perfect knowledge of how the treatments will work or how the ecosystem is going to respond to both the fire and the treatments. Unfortunately, until recently, um, we haven't really had a good learning system and our learning system still stands to benefit from improvements, by the way. Um, are we collecting monitoring data? Is that data being um, adequately um, stored and processed and made available to make decisions upon? And if the data and the information are available for decision-making, are they actually used? Not always. Um, one of the problems in the past has been how well treatments have been documented. And a grand challenge to learning is that these large fires, like within 100, maybe 500,000 acres, typically you're gonna have a lot of environmental variability. Um, unlike treatments imposed on a flat farm field, we expect that the response is gonna be heterogeneous. And the question is, how do you deal with that heterogeneity when you're devising metrics of success? All of this is really critical for enabling adaptive management. And you can see these are seemingly low-hanging fruits that could be um, dealt with. Scroll forward to 2015. Uh, a large wildfire occurred under high wind conditions right in the face of the large metro area, Boise, Idaho, um, located here in the upper right corner. Right up in here, okay. And perhaps not surprisingly, uh, locally people said, they looked at this charred landscape and they said, do something, let's act. I'm not sure that's always the best thing to do, but that was the, 
the response. At the national level, um, a decision had just been reached about the um, possible listing of greater sage grouse, and there was a deep concern that the management, that these, this landscape be operated in a way that um, preserved wildlife habitat. And um, also, following that, um, that decision was the release of Secretarial Order 3336, which later became known as the Integrated Rangeland Fire Management Strategy, which um, addressed a number of the points that I raised on that previous slide and allowed for an extended period for treatment application, including retreatments, mon adequate monitoring and collaboration. In other words, some of the key elements for adaptive management. That language wasn't actually spelled out. Adaptive management wasn't necessarily spelled out so clearly in the order, but um, nonetheless, that's what it was about. The um, Secretary of the Department of Interior, the Director of the BLM, and many high-level um, administrators came to the site and said, okay, we really want to see what it would take to restore a burned sagebrush step landscape. Can we do it if we follow these pr principles of adaptive management? So a little bit of background on this landscape. Number one, um, it was heterogeneous, okay? The lower elevations here, sagebrush step is meeting its uh, warm, dry limits um, where it butts up against salt desert, very degraded habitat mostly, um, lots of exotic annual grasses, very hard for um, restoring. Those areas have um, low resistance to exotic annual grasses and low resilience to disturbances. At the higher elevations, in cooler and wetter uh, soil conditions, we had the opposite. Um, so we had many different um, types of sagebrush steppe communities across this landscape. There's also a lot of diversity in the, the human uh, context here. For one, the Owyhees, um, if you're not familiar with them, are, are very much iconic of the Wild West and federal land management in the West. Uh, there's a, a fairly deep and interesting history of both conflict and collaboration between the different user groups, like, for example, sheep ranchers and livestock operators, and as well between those user groups and the um, land owners and land managers. And all of that kind of played into um, the whole adaptive management. A partners group, the SOTA Partners was formed that consisted of probably about 20 different um, agencies and peoples, uh, people on this landscape, all of these partners and more. A really important part of the human context was um, the existence of different levels um, and histories of, of the, the trust between the different organizations and people involved in this partnership. And Laura mentioned for Roger and for the Martin Fire how the uh, essentially pre-adaptation of these linkages was essential. Well, we had some of that in place for soda, but not all of it. A lot of these linkages were actually strengthened during the process. Well, the one I'm most familiar with as a researcher, a scientist in the USGS is right here. Um, you know, in the years before this wildfire, um, I was very much interested in, in working with the BLM. And um, I quickly learned that um, to my counterparts in the BLM, USGS, which I consider to be a four-letter acronym, was more like a four-letter word to them. Uh, they were actually kind of frustrated with us um, regarding some of the science that had rolled out of our shop. Um, some of that science, they felt, um, made their jobs a little bit harder. It kind of challenged some of their assumptions and, and paradigms. 
And they didn't feel a sense of ownership of the science, and they wanted that changed. And um, we all in the USGS now agree that's a really great objective. So we worked very hard in the years leading up to SOTA, which increased the, the trust level to the extent that for, I think, one of the first times ever, the, the BLM actually delegated their monitoring and assessment to the USGS, to a third party. If you've ever been involved in an ESR project, you know that that is um, a considerable leap of, of faith and trust. Also, um, the BLM you know, has a, a very important uh, linkage to the livestock permittees. These livestock operators were severely impacted by the fire. Typically, they pay about $1.50 for, per AUM for cow-calf pair. After the fire, there was typically about a minimum of two years of rest, although arrangements were made for more um, years of rest after some of the um, high-dollar treatment investments. And in the meantime, these ranchers had to seek other sources of forage and, and um, you know, to sustain their livestock, sometimes up to like $30 per AUM. So huge impact. We wanted to try to get them back on the landscape, but they and everyone else agreed that they didn't want to do it too early. We wanted to make sure that the landscape was ready to withstand the, um, the impact of the livestock. The wildlife agencies, of course, were very concerned with sage-grouse and other wildlife and wanted to know that um, the actions being taken here were indeed in the, you know, um, going to be consistent with um, wildlife management needs. For me, this was a very um, interesting thing to get into. You know, as a scientist, I'm rewarded for writing papers and doing science. Um, it's not really my job description to dive in deep with land managers and work side by side with them. That required a tremendous amount of time and, and energy. I'll talk later about motivations for engagement. First, I want to kind of dive into a little bit more of the context. Um, many different treatments. So the herbicide amazepic, a pre-emergent, which selectively knocks out the, the uh, annual uh, germination requirements of cheatgrass and worse off, medusa head, um, but generally has little impact to perennials. So it's applied either in the first or second and sometimes third year, actually. That's not shown. Drill seedings. So over tens, 50, 50 plus thousand acres, um, these treatments were applied. Broadcast seeding was done over 180,000 acres here. Again, you can see all these different years, aerial grass seeding in places where you can't get a rangeland drill. This was all deemed necessary because sagebrush doesn't establish very well by seed after fire. And furthermore, there were threats of exotic annual grass invasions and perennial bunch grasses are de deemed to be crucial for rebuilding resistance to invasion and resilience to disturbances. The key problems, um, so. I should also note that um, this team, the, Sage, the um, Soda Fire Partners and the ESR staff had many years of experience. Um, I would consider some of the best in the industry. And yet there was still a considerable amount of uncertainty in how to apply these treatments and what to expect. And that uncertainty is a, is a key theme here. Number one, how do you combine all these different treatments? Herbicide, could kill the seeds that you put into the ground, right? So how do you phase or layer these different treatments? That's something that we you know, took a deep dive with the managers on in our interaction. When and how to bring back the livestock raising. 
Okay? You don't want to impact those tasty, young, um, perennial grasses that are resprouting. On the other hand, fuel accumulation is an issue, and um, we want those livestock operators just to be able to operate sustainably on these landscapes. It's essential. Objectives and thresholds, like how do you know when the data suggests that this has been successful or that you're ready to bring livestock back? Seems easy, but it's not. Okay, now, co-production, how are we doing? Co-production, here's the cycle that Leaf showed us. USGS came in at this stage. Um, some scientists were brought on, on board, Jason Williams, I think you were brought on for, um, to deal with water erosion and some of these issues, but really the USGS didn't come to the table until it was time to um, set objectives, um, devise the monitoring program, and deal with the R word. So there's a lot of concern um, in the BLM that this not turn into a research project. Um, but after um, six plus months of, of deliberations and discussions, everybody came to the term that there really isn't this binomial like separation of research and management. In fact, they both use the same data sets a lot of times. And there's a, a tremendous amount of efficiency to be gained by having the researchers doing the monitoring using monitoring data to answer key research questions, and vice versa, using research data to inform management where it's appropriate. Once you have the data, it's not trivial to interpret it and apply it to this, um, these decision-making processes, and we were at the table for that. As Leif mentioned, communication is essential, and this was just an absolutely tremendous um, time and energy allocation, both internally between us and the BLM and the other partners. Um, weekly emails and phone calls, bi-weekly meetings. Uh, we're in the fifth year of the project and this still is holding. Um, external communication was essential. Um, I learned some lessons. Um, you know, the BLM faces a lot of um, scrutiny from many different kinds of user groups and they have to be very strategic about their communication. Well, we were kind of married to them. Um, journalists and others would come to us. Uh, we learned some lessons about how to um, adopt what the BLM has learned about how to um, you know, be very careful and strategic in, in the messaging about this. Um, huge, so all of the communication was very much co-produced and it was a huge educational thing for me. Um, field trips were essential here. We opened ourselves up to a lot of feedback. Some of it was pretty, pretty darn critical, um, but we feel over, overall people have learned a lot from what we've done. How to monitor. Um, so uncertainty was a key factor here. Um, we wanted to know, you know, we wanted to get away from this idea of doing drive-by monitoring or only monitoring a dozen plots across 300,000 acres. Instead, we worked with the BLM to co-produce this monitoring uh, network of, of uh, thousands of points. Seems like a lot, but if you do the math, it comes out to only about one plot per 135 acres. Still, it was, it was vastly uh, better than what had been accomplished before. We can learn a lot from the heterogeneity within this fire with that monitoring. The monitoring was done to inform the BLM about retreatment opportunities. So you apply herbicide in one year, the next year you come back and you discover lots of annual grasses germinating, well, you have an opportunity to retreat. That was a huge advance in uh, the whole ESR strategy. Accountability, $67 million were authorized, but not necessarily spent for this project. So of course, the 
government would like to know what's happening with the vegetation and the soils, so we're monitoring to inform that process. And probably most importantly, the biggest effort was on good monitoring for management decisions about um, livestock resumption. And again, in all of these, you know, uncertainty, although we were pretty sure of what we were doing, we acknowledged what we didn't know. So there were known knowns, assumptions. There's also known unknowns. And we also discovered some unknown unknowns along the way. <clears throat> um, the general goal, again, to increase resistance resilience, we had pretty good buy-in from everybody on this. Um, most people did not want to see another very expensive, intensive management response needing to occur after the next fire. Like, let's say there's a fire in 2025. We don't want to have to repeat this. We want a landscape that is able to self-heal after fire. How do you get there? How much vegetation cover do you need? While you go into the literature, there's a few, but not many, studies on this topic. And then furthermore, you know, does 20% perennial bunchgrass cover really mean that your landscape is going to be resistant to cheatgrass invasion down the road, considering low elevation sites, high elevation sites, different species of bunchgrasses, and other different contexts? We knew we had, to, we had to have quantitative objectives, and we had to use these moving forward, but we recognized some of the weaknesses. Devising these took about six months, lots of meetings and, and, uh, and time, and what we realized along the way was that there are some huge science needs in here. Forb and sagebrush seeding, one plant per 10 meters squared in suitable areas. The BLM wanted to know that, you know, they wanted to recognize this isn't a farm field. We expect patchiness. We expect the sagebrush to be present in the patches. Well, where are those patches supposed to be? And the answer was, you know, in the good spots. Well, we tried to use, take a scientific approach to that using the actual data. So here I'll describe, a, I'm very briefly going to touch on a couple of these different um, research outcomes. There's so many from the soil microbe all the way up to the sage grouse that we're studying pretty intensively. The first one, you know, we, we lots of deliberation on monitoring. A lot of people said that it was, our monitoring, first of all, wasn't necessary, and secondly, just wasn't necessary. Um, expert opinion would, would be adequate, okay? Well, we proved them wrong. We got the, the monitoring done every year um, up until um, now, the fifth year. We'll, I'm sure we'll do it again. We were able to do sampling effort curves. This is for a particular pasture, exotic annual cover. Um, here we're showing, you know, that um, if we take random draw of plots, we could have only sampled 20 plots to um, achieve the generally about as good uh, precision as is possible meaning that um, in, in the next time around, we wouldn't need to necessarily sample all those extra plots. This, this is for a medium elevation. If you go lower in elevation, we've discovered things like you don't need as many plots. If you're dominated by cheatgrass, if you have a sea of cheatgrass, maybe you need few, fewer plots. Higher elevations where the cheatgrass is patchier and scarcer, you need more. Um, why was this important? Number one, the, the managers helped us come up with the research questions. There was no, you know, they needed this info. Number two, they helped us um, set to the table and worked with us on the experimental design. They looked at the data when it first came in with us. Um, they worked with us in the interpretation. They gave comments on the manuscript, feedback. They are authors on the paper because of the policy of the particular district office. But nonetheless, they feel a sense of ownership of the, these data. And they embraced this very much throughout the whole SOTA thing, the, the, the discussion was not on how much plant you think is out there, but 
What's the mean value? What's the variability? And how does that variability relate to the quantitative objectives that were set? I'm going to gloss over the next few of these because I think I'm running low on time. Um, suitable microsites for sagebrush. Um, we are able. This is a heat map showing where you have lots of sagebrush recovering and none at the lower elevations. Um, we were able to define, again, with our co-producing co this with the BLM, um, what is a suitable microsite? Um, we have lots of discoveries of factors that um, affect sagebrush recovery. Um, and we identified some of those threshold responses. What's, you know, how much uh, perennial bunch grass is too much in terms of sagebrush recovery? Herbicide effects. So Mazepec was being brought back into the ESR tool with this fire. Uh, there have been many years of reluctance to use it because of fear of off-site drift. Um, here we're showing that you know, you can apply the first year after fire, but also maybe wait a year, let the cheatgrass come back, stabilize the site, and then intervene. And what you see is that you still knock out exotic annual grasses reasonably well without impacting the bunch grasses. And in some ways, you get a better release of native forbs. Co-production here was very intense. BLM wanted to know that we had suitable control sites. Herbicides are not randomly applied to the landscape. How do you pick your untreated controls? We spent months and a lot of time in the field deliberating that question. Um, here's some forthcoming information. Each of these points is a pasture. Um, how much perennial bunch grass in 2016 compared to 2018? You can see these values are increasing over time, which is great, especially where uh, livestock grazing had been uh, not yet permitted. Uh, notice, however, we the livestock were generally let out um, before bunch grasses had achieved that 20% threshold. So along the way, we had to adjust the objectives. We weren't quite sure. Okay, a couple minutes to roll up here. Some findings. Adaptive management can definitely be done, including all that monitoring that people were kind of afraid of initially. The partnership that we formed is in some ways the most important um, aspect. We stand much more ready now in Southwest Idaho to respond to the next megafire because we are learning from the actual management actions. And this is uh, <clears throat> really only possible through the co-production, through the cooperation. It increases the reliability of the science produced because we're getting the, you know, the input from the managers who see the ground a lot more frequently and intensely than the scientists. And it's, they own it. They, this is the science, the questions that they posed. Um, they were participants in the science, even though they're not scientists, and so they are much more likely to use it. But there are challenges, and I hope this leads into our discussion. What are the motivating factors for these individuals to actually engage in this? A lot of times, getting involved in this is not part of a, a job description. Our agencies are, are configured to deal with projects and programs, but these adaptive management things sit right in the middle. And there was a lot of... Um, fiscal and agency um, challenges that we, we continue to deal with in terms of making all this happen. It was individuals that really were key to making this whole thing run, um, all the way from the Secretary of the, of the Department of Interior to the program leads for the ESR um, shop to Idaho State Office and particularly in the Boise District. There's been at least three turnovers in all of those positions, and it's remarkable that this project has endured all of that. Um, and part of that is because we have a diverse community of uh, partners that are involved that, who remember what the goals were initially and, and carry on that vision. Um, it's been essential. So our project, project itself has resistance and resilience. 
and we do hope that this um, that the lessons can be learned and brought forward to other projects. What uh, I'm going to talk about for the for the next 15 minutes is a national scale. And uh, we need to start thinking about uh, pre-fire fuels management and post-fire uh, soil and vegetation management from a national perspective. If you're in the Florida, you're dealing with the Everglades fires. If you're in the longleaf uh, pine forest of the southeast or the boreal forests up in Alaska, um, these are real fire issues. So we're, we're looking at um, real responsibility as managers and scientists in terms of um, getting a handle on on the, the the fire regimes and how they're changing and how they may change in the future and and what management means to all that management from a pre-fire and a post-fire standpoint. Um, and if you think about the responsibility from a federal standpoint, there's 640 million acres of federal land area in the United States. And um, that's 25% of the land area of the United States. Um, so it's a, it is a big responsibility. 25% of the footprint of our lands are public and they're managed by the federal government. The biggest player of those is the Bureau of Land Management and uh, occupying about 10% of the land area in the United States is managed by one agency. And I've had the fortune of being in the Department of Interior and I work with the US Geological Survey, but being able to work with other DOI partners like the Bureau of Land Management and knowing what an important role that is given the national scale um, and essentially the footprint we're having in the United States and the partnerships and also the relationships with neighbors because obviously these lands are not in isolation. So um, we're talking a lot today about co-production and adaptive management and LEAF in the beginning presented this uh, adaptive management cycle and I'm not going to go over it again, but one thing that has always bugged me about adaptive management cycles is there's a, a big piece missing here. And to me, that's the document and archive. Um, Matt touched on it a little bit, but if, if we're not documenting what we do and not just monitoring data, because, well, we can talk about monitoring. How many people have collected monitoring data on paper and it's still sitting in a folder somewhere? Raise your hand. Uh, most of us, right? You collect data and it seems like a great idea and it makes you feel good and you check that box and it gets stuck in a cupboard somewhere. But it's it's not just monitoring data. It's also the information about the, the treatment that occurred. What seed mix was applied? Why was it applied? Um, what equipment was used? There's all sorts of information that goes along with soil and vegetation management related to post-fire um, that really needs to be documented and archived. And, and the USGS and BLM has teamed up to try to address this for um, these BLM lands in the U.S., and that is what we call the Land Treatment Digital Library. And this was a project that started in 2007. It actually started as an ESR-focused effort. Um, there were some scientists with USGS that were interested in, in looking at post-fire uh, seeding success rates, and we needed to get all the records of what was seeded where and take a nice random sample from from fires out there so that we had a good, um, you know, a good study design and we had good inference. And so in this process, I was part of this team. I realized, wow, if we're bugging this field office and that field office, 
the next scientist is right behind us. And actually, there were scientists in front of us that had already bugged them, and they're getting a little annoyed. And we thought, let's just do this once and try to compile all this information into one place. The idea was to organize and a little bit to standardize in that process, because it's, it's important to, to standardize um, so that you can you know, have things in, in a form that other people can use. Other people can use. That was a key part of it, too. We didn't want to hoard this information. We wanted to share it. And so um, we needed to make it accessible. And, uh, and making it accessible really involves centralization. And I know, particularly in agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, this kind of hierarchy or centralization is a little bit scary because it requires a whole lot of agreement between field offices and state offices and the national office about what this database looks like. In fact, when we started this process and said, what if we started organizing all this information and made it available, they said, that's fine, don't call it a database. Why? Because database had a bad reputation. So we called it the digital library, the land treatment digital library. So why land treatments? Well, if you think about this, uh, these huge acres of land that we're talking about, particularly in the Western United States, um, there's a whole lot of effort that's being done for years and years and years on manipulating soils and manipulating vegetation. Originally, it was to remove sagebrush and get forage grasses available for more livestock production. And then we've seen a shift, and now we're more worried about invasives and fire and trying to get sagebrush and other things back on the landscape, as well as balancing needs for livestock production. And so it's gotten a lot more complicated than just ripping sagebrush out. But really, it's uh, at, a, at a national scale, focusing on where we're manipulating soil and vegetation is critically important for better management. And so how was this produced? Um, it was an effort that really started at the Washington office level um, in, with USGS saying, would you like us to do this? We're already doing it now. Would you like us to keep doing it and, and try to organize it? Um, and the idea was, yes, that's a good idea. But each level of organization in BLM has a different perspective and a different need. And, and what the Washington office might be asking us to do, the, the field offices might not like that. Or they may be so busy that they don't really want some USGS scientists coming in and, and organizing data and making it um, in, in a form that's, that's what we thought useful but not useful to them. So there's, it's interesting to think about co-production and different perspectives and different needs. But essentially what we did is we went to every single field office in the United States and gathered every piece of information we could find on anything that manipulated soils or vegetation and organized it and made it available. What does that look like? Well, um, since the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934, there's been, uh, well, actually BLM formed in 1946, I think. Um, but you can see the jump in, in the, the kind of pinkish uh, bars there. That's the number of treatments that have been added to the Land Treatment Digital Library um, since the beginning of the Taylor Grazing Act. And then the the blue line is a cumulative of acres on the right side. So you can see that climbs all the way up to 2018 at 22 million acres of land has been, uh, had some type of land treatment occurred on it. And this is a vast underestimate. It's, a, it's an underestimate because we know that records have been lost. In fact, right now, we're going back to field offices because we're, we're, we're falling behind, and I'll talk about that in a minute. 
but we're needing to kind of bridge the gap between the last time we were there and today. And in that process, fortunately, field officers are saying, we have found old records that we know you don't have. And so we're, this record of information is gonna get even better and better, which is exciting. But it's, we realize that it is a, an underestimate because some records are lost because of fire and mold and other reasons. So how are these distributed? Well, partly uh, this is a, a table on the on the left there. That's the the treatments per state. That's just the number of land treatments. Each one land treatment could be ten thousand acres, and it's a value of one. So those are just counts. And on the right is the distribution in the uh, in on BLM lands in the United States. And you can see, like, wow, Oregon has a whole lot of treatments, thirteen thousand, and and Nevada has a whole lot. Well, some of that's in relation to land area, right? So what are our top four outside of Alaska? Nevada at 87% public land, uh, and then Utah, Idaho, Oregon. Oregon's number four, still 60% public land in Oregon. So um, these are really proportional really to the to how much public land and how much BLM land is on those in those areas. But it's also in relation to things like fire. And post-fire seedings really dominates the Land Treatment Digital Library, partly because it's large acres and, and um, the ESR program has been incredibly effective at um, stabilizing soils, reducing erosion, combating cheatgrass, trying to restore some ecological integrity um, to these these areas that have been so heavily damaged by fire. And so ESR is a big component to the Land Treatment Digital Library. This is just a pie chart for Idaho with its 8,000 uh, land treatments. And you can see about a third are seedings, and I would say that 99% of those seedings are post-fire. Whole lot of information there. So how is this information being used? Well, we've, we respond to a lot of data requests. Um, it has been very fortunate for uh, folks that are at the field office level that get a data call that they, somebody wants all of the forage kosher seedings that has ever taken place in a field office. Well, that used to be a very cumbersome task. We can answer that question for them in about one minute now. So it's an incredibly powerful set of uh, data, and we have about 110 data requests like that since 2009. And we work closely with other data requests that come from outside of BLM to make sure that they're legitimate and so forth. This, all the data is not completely publicly available and we uh, work carefully to guard some of it. And then other uh, uses have been for research. There's been about 21 scientific journal articles. I said 21 plus because I think they're coming out all the time. Um, I know of five uh, dissertations and theses that have been published already, but I know others are underway. So this information is also being used in that inner loop, the research arm uh, of that adaptive management cycle. So I'm just going to give you a, a case study of how I've been involved with this and how uh, some of the lessons that you've heard from Laura and Matt about co-production and, and what we can learn from it um, as an example. So I've been interested in sagebrush restoration for quite a while. And this is a, a figure of the, the genera that are, uh, these are seeded acres on BLM lands and um, they're listed in order. So Artemisia or sagebrush, big sagebrush, um, that's the number of acres seeded in the United States over time. 
And then to orient you to the colors, green are native species and, and gray are non-native species. So number one, the most seeding uh, over by far is sagebrush has been seeded on BLM lands. Um, and if you look at the y-axis, that's in millions, two million. The next one down, which is crested wheatgrass, that, that it tops out at 500,000. So we were at times putting out two million acres of seed of sagebrush seed uh, in the United States in, in some of those peaks right there. Um, but still, you can see that list goes down, some of the grasses and alfalfa and so forth. So it was a whole lot of information. It was an incredibly powerful tool. We thought we can learn from this. So let's take that available information on sagebrush seeding and learn from it. Let's go after those areas and see how well that sagebrush was successfully um, growing and, and uh, kind of recovering in these post-fire environments. That little map just shows you by state what we're dealing with in terms of the number of sagebrush seedings. And you can see Nevada and Idaho dominate those in the Great Basin, partly because of fire. Okay, so the first project was uh, the Chrono Sequence Project, and Dave Pike, who's in the audience, uh, was the lead on this. And this was a, a request from higher level folks in Joint Fire Science Program and BLM um, asking, you know, can you uh, help identify um, how successful sagebrush seeding is in, in the uh, Great Basin area? And so uh, a research project was formed. We took a random sample. We went to 100 fires. Uh, and went out to these areas anywhere from eight to, to 20 years after the fire and, and assessed how well the sagebrush recovered in these post-fire seeding, comparing drill seeding and aerial seeding and so forth. And we got results, and the results were not very well. The sagebrush wasn't doing particularly well in these post-fire seeding areas. Perennial grasses were doing pretty well, and where the perennial grasses were doing well, um, often they were outcompeting cheatgrass. So there was some positive sides to this, but the take-home message was sagebrush seeding is kind of it's very difficult and often failing. So we thought that was incredibly useful information. That was not the feedback we heard from a lot of the field offices in BLM. Um, it, I think, like Matt was saying, it made their life a little bit more difficult. They had to answer some questions. Why are you spending money putting sagebrush seed out there if it's always failing and so forth? Um, and so we realized that maybe the, the approach we took, which is to go out and do our research, could have been done differently. So we said, okay, let's sit down with the field office folks and the state office folks and the Washington office folks, and let's do this differently. How would you like us to do this? And it was a real co-production moment where we were working together to formulate the questions, even changing our study design to improve the information that was coming out of the work. And when I say improve, instead of just saying seeding's failing, it shifted to more to how can we do it better? How can we successfully get sagebrush to establish? What are the limiting factors and how can we manipulate those so that we're going to be more successful, more cost efficient, and so forth? I think that's an exciting uh, part of, of co-production, this idea of working between science and research, bridging that gap. Um, anyways, that project was called the Sage Success Project. It just has wrapped up and we're publishing a bunch of papers um, and uh, keep your eyes out for those. I've just listed a couple here. Okay, so 
that's an example in this kind of applied research, this inner loop in your figure there of how applied research could kind of connect all the dots, including archiving information. Um, but what we noticed when we looked at the use patterns at the website for the Land Treatment Digital Library, it was like 90% scientists and 10% uh, managers. And we thought, well, that's not, that's not great. How do, we, how do we bump that up? And right about that time, we were approached by some folks from BLM that said, how about if you designed a tool that allowed us to mine the data in the Land Treatment Digital Library in, in, in real time? Matt mentioned ESR, has, those plans have to be submitted 21 days after the fire and smoke is out. So you have a very short window of time. How could you use the data in the LTDL in an adaptive management way to help um, improve those plans and so forth? And so we went, took that task at heart and um, started taking this LTDL archive and putting it into this resource management uh, resource planning framework. And this is the land treatment exploration tool. And if you're interested in it, I also have some flyers down here on the table afterwards, you can grab one. I'm not gonna go into all the background, but just to let you know that this tool identifies characteristics of planned treatment sites, identifies past treatments that share similar characteristics. So the idea is if you're gonna do a, a, an ESR project, what can you learn from past ESR projects? And not with some big research project, but in real time. And obviously to, to take that information, be able to put it into reports and for planning purposes. And then ultimately what we realized is facilitate communication. We had learned a lot in this process and we realized one of the most important things we could do is, hey, if this other field office has also seeded that seed mix on that ecological site, give them a call, see what worked. But without knowing that that other field office had done that and they only have a 21 day to you know, window to make this decision, they wouldn't know who to call. So this is also aiding in communication. So just three slides on what it looks like. So this is a polygon. You can draw it or you can upload it and you can extract all sorts of information about um, the area that you're working in, where the post, where the fires have happened in that area, what other land treatments have happened in that area. Um, we have dozens and dozens of, of coverages in here. This is an example that I've shown you of greater sage grouse breeding habitat probability. And so this is color coded with um, red being lower, uh, I think it's lower. Red is, is a higher probability of success and yellow is slightly lower. But this is the kind of background information you could get, get putting your treatment in a landscape context and pulling in this legacy information. But then to be able to learn from the past, you really need to access that information directly. And so what we did is we uh, created a buffering system where you can select either uh, a distance or some other uh, ecological or, or uh, management boundary and select similar treatments from those areas. So in this case, I've just done a 50 kilometer buffer around our proposed treatment area. And then you ask it, okay, what, what other types of post-fire ESR treatments have been done in that 50-kilometer buffer? And it will bring you up a list. And this is an example. And so if you originally, remember I said we had 50,000 land treatments in the LTDL, you couldn't sort through all that. So now we've narrowed it down to 270 just by the click of a button and uploading that file and giving it a distance buffer. Um, I'm not gonna go into the details of the color coding, but essentially it gives you information about 
um, the availability of seed lists and the availability of monitoring data and the availability of results and so forth. So you can quickly and visually look at what information is available for each of those. And then if you clicked on one, it opens up and it gives you all the details, including what are the species that were seeded, what was their seeding rate, what was the PLS if it's available and so forth. Um, and then who did the work so that you might give them a call and find out um, what worked and didn't work. And then if you really were like, God, we don't, we're not, we, we just want to know, you know, one thing. We want to know where low sage is going to be successful. You could say, okay, well, put that in as a parameter. Just say, here's my treatment area. Tell me where I should be planting low sage. And so we're working on this um, with integrating other tools as well in terms of seed zone concepts and so forth. Um, and then ecological drought, looking at if this is your seeding area, um, what's the probability that it's about to enter another drought? So pulling in National Weather Service data and so forth. So this is just a, a quick glimpse at where we're going, but um, this is going to be, I think, a, a particularly useful tool in the ESR post-fire management world. And then ultimately, all this information could be used as justification also. When you put in that purchase order for a, a seed mix, you have some justification for why you selected that seed mix instead of just a hunch or local knowledge. Not that local knowledge is, is something to scoff at. In fact, it can be some of the most important knowledge, but it can also be added to this background of information as well. So ultimately, um, what we're trying to do here in this, in this series of talks is, is to, to close this loop in terms of the adaptive management cycle. And um, just to, to show you kind of where I think this might be going in terms of Bureau of Land Management and USGS, um, on, on that left side, I put archive right in the loop this time, all right? Um, at the top there is the, the plan, the land treatment exploration tool, which I presented. Now we're moving into an exciting phase with uh, big data and data systems um, and this vegetation management action portal that BLM is, is soon launching is gonna, I think, really connect all the dots where you have on the bottom there monitoring like AIM and, and, uh, and, uh, and associated monitoring data like that and basically all of those cycles are now connected so that we have a permanent archive and can learn from the past. I want to thank the, the folks that uh, have put in a lot of effort into pulling these data together. This is, I, I always tell the folks that work for me, I say the Land Treatment Digital Library is a labor of love. It started in 2007. We're still entering data. 50,000 land treatments, is, it takes a very long time. Um, so there's a, a lot of people that put a lot of work into this. And also just the cooperation of, of uh, BLM folks at the field office level and state and national level of seeing a vision of how this information could be used and, and um, you know, working together to make it happen. Thank you. The question is, um, is there an example from SOTA of where the monitoring led to a lesson, like a fundamental new knowledge that was then imparted into the subsequent treatment? So um, in the most optimal adaptive management program, that would, that would for sure be occurring. Um, I don't think I could honestly say that a fundamental change in knowledge was then assimilated into the process. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. Keep in mind, this was the first implementation. It was actually a major, um, it, was, it was really a, a paradigm shift to enter this, this way of operating. Um, for sure, um, 
observation, you know, we, we learned things through the monitoring data about where treatments were having the desired effect or not, and then follow-on treatments were applied in order to get the landscape moving in the right direction. Um, I think that the follow-on treatments, which were initially planned, were sustained um, or laid off of a little bit because of what we were learning regarding the interaction between herbicides and drill seeding, for example. Um, I think when people began to see the, that the um, resprouting perennial forbs, for example, and the um, sagebrush that had established prior to the delayed herbicide treatments, that the, that the damage to the perennials wasn't happening, then that tool was applied a little bit more aggressively in the subsequent follow-on years. But that's a little bit of like kind of like a technical insight and not really like a fundamental um, uh, new way of seeing the problem. Um, so the short answer is I think that um, I hope that in the next application of adaptive management that you know that the the the, um, the genuine incorporation of new insight, like fundamentally new knowledge, is is acted on a little bit more rigorously. In consideration of the uh, co-production paradigm. Is there a, like bringing seed producers into that conversation so that when you're looking at your 21-day window, uh, you could say seed's going to be available when I get the money and if I get the money. But that sort of idea is sometimes um, you get the money and then all the seed is not there that you are hoping to use. And so bringing those seed producers into the conversation for not just like real-time availability, but maybe even projected availability of seed. I'm, I'm not sure that was a question, but I like the idea. I will say that the BLM seed warehouse program is working on making their seed information tracked more closely so that from from collection to storage to availability for application is uh, hopefully going to go smoother. And I think what you're talking about will facilitate that process even better. So there's a little advanced planning. One of the key things we're learning about is, um, you know, the traditional paradigm was that you had to get all the seed onto that freshly burned soil prior to the you know, the emergence of, of um, cheatgrass or, comp you know, if you want to get sagebrush in the mix, you know, you're better off to get that stuff on that burnt soil so that it has a chance to germinate and maybe begin to put some roots down before the grasses come in really thick. Um, one of the important things that I think is being learned in these projects is that the, op the window of treatment, um, the, the window for treatment intervention opportunity is probably longer than people thought. Like interventions made in the second or third year can still have really great outcomes. And this buys um, a lot of latitude for, um, for this whole issue of getting the supply of seed to match the demand. Um, <clears throat> one other thing that's coming out of related adaptive management projects is we're learning a lot more about seed longevity and storage. And that's going to greatly buffer this issue of matching seed supply and demand. Uh, this is one of the one of the most uh, important issues for ESR. I have a question. Um, 
question about, I wanted to hear more about the developing of research and monitoring data um, or methods, because I've been trying to work on that as well, and, and you know, finding that it's difficult due to different objectives and, and methods needed. Um, so I'd love to hear about some ways that you guys can work through that. So the LTDL does not normally incorporate research data. Um, is that correct, David? Okay. But in SODA, we, we did have a, um, a very tight marriage of the data. Um, and some variables like, um, you know, percent cover. Um, percent cover is percent cover, no matter if it's measured for research or monitoring. And believe it or not, that was... That, that point is, was actually a hard sell initially because people would look at the label, research. This was collected for research. It should not be used for monitoring. And monitoring should not be done in a way that could ever fulfill research needs. Like, I'm not exaggerating. That was a real schism at the beginning of the project. Um, so I, my shop is the steward for all of the, um, the, the, the data that have been collected on SODA. Um, and in one... Um, access database we can have all of you know all of the data that's in there and we'll say who collected it and what they collected it for um, and so it's as simple as just simply lumping it into the same database and spreadsheet actually for us um, the one hitch is that sometimes the objectives influence how plots were selected and that's where things get get messy, and that's where it's really incumbent on the user of the data to be very um, aware in how why they're allowing different um, sampling points to be folded into an analysis. This, by the way, worries me a little bit when the data um, so the data are on their way to becoming uh, publicly available. Um, you know, we have standard agency clearances that must be followed. Um, one of the fears that I have when the data enter the cloud is whether or not the users are, are, are going to um, do the extra work that's required to know these key differences on like whether or not that plot was like truly land, randomly located or whether it was part, whether it was positioned based on some sort of stratification period. All that info is, will be in with the metadata, so, but the, you know, again, it's, uh, the onus is on the end user to do the extra work to, to see that. I haven't resolved how to, how to grapple with that issue just yet. The federal government, we're not allowed to say you can't have the data. It's gotta go, on, it's gotta go up, it's gotta become available and online you know, for, for everybody. Hi, thank you so much, um, especially for your emphasis on adaptive management and engagement with uh, members of the community to include their knowledge in the process. And in hearing you talk about monitoring, it was bringing to mind a difference between engagement of members of the community for their knowledge and then monitoring how members of the community are experiencing change. Because you mentioned social and political drivers and then some responses to change in terms of having to go and find other places for cattle after the fire. So I guess my question might be for Laura, but also for our other speakers. Um, who do you look to to get a finger on the pulse of social, economic, and political conditions 
so that we're improving our integration of our ecological monitoring with societal monitoring, if you will. I'm just wondering if that's something that you bear in mind, especially with respect to impact assessments and the kind of information we need to improve those. And if you have any lingering thoughts after your engagement with other agencies. I don't have a specific answer about impact assessments, except to say I believe in Nevada, through UNR, there is a, a quite a large-scale kind of socioeconomic assessment being done um, as a way to pair with other resource needs assessments that are being done across the state, but I don't have all the data, I don't have all the information or background on that. In terms of in the work that we, we've been doing in Roger, we get the information pulls from the ranchers that are, that we're working with. So, you know, we hear from them directly, you know, everybody's in the room together, the researchers, the managers, the technical specialists, the ranchers, you know, whether it's a fire or a drought or whatever's happening, we hear directly from how they're being impacted, what they need to remain sustainable, what that might look like. Um, and so it's that kind of an organic conversation that happens. They're very, they're very much engaged. The ranchers that were impacted, at least on the east side that I know of, of the Martin Fire were very much engaged in the development of the ESR plan and the and future grazing agreements and continue to be very much engaged. Um, so that that's basically how we do it. There's not a large formal assessment, socioeconomic or political assessment that's going on um, with our group. It's just really having those people in the room, sharing their different perspectives, knowledges and experiences and figuring out a way to create a solution that works for everyone the best extent we can. Laura, I'm thinking of that comment. Did, did you explain the role maybe of extension offices, co-op units, and others in, in, in kind of canvassing and soliciting some of that information from private landowners? Yes, well we well in in Roger in particular we have um, Extension is very engaged participant, so is Nevada Association of Conservation Districts and, and folks involved in the various conservation districts in the state. Um, I would say, as far as camp, well, you know, extension agents, of course, work very closely with community members and producers to figure out what their needs are and help, you know, try to design ways to get information they need and continue to play that role of translating, like I was talking about. Um, conservation districts in particular in Nevada recently have um, formed a, uh, or reignited, I guess, a partnership with NRCS and they're conducting, uh, they're working with various CDs in the state. I think they have seven going where they're doing these resource, community level resource needs assessments as a way to inform um, community-based conservation plans. So once that process, you know, continues and and actually gets put together, there will be that information set that people can draw from and link to, and they're trying, as they develop those plans, to also coordinate very closely with you know, BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, and out and incorporate their priorities into those community-based conservation plans as well. That's the best answer I have at the moment. Uh, thank you all again. Um, I kind of have a two-part question, and it's uh, a tech transfer question, maybe for David, I guess. Um, I guess, so the first part of it is, uh, do you have an idea on the public land manager use of this archive of data? 
um, I guess like if you were to walk into a field, like a BLM field office um, and mentioned, you know, the land treatment exploration tool, would they know or have heard about this? And then second, how can we as partners um, help with the uptake of this uh, tech transfer in getting our public land partners and managers more aware um, of this archive of data? That's a great question. And the... I mentioned that the, one of the issues we realized was that the field offices were not using it. And I think the reason for that is because they're not looking back. They're always looking forward and putting out fires, not literally, but also literally. And, um, and so that's why the, the planning part of it became so important because um, using the land treatment exploration tool, it suddenly becomes relevant. And we're launching that this summer. So, right, the answer to your question is no, but I think it soon will be yes. And that's because as people see the value in something, they'll, they'll value it more as they use it. And hopefully it's a positive feedback loop where the better the information is collected and documented, and then you're suddenly using that information. You see, you see how valuable it can be, and you're more likely to say, "Yeah, we should keep good records and and keep this going. Um, otherwise, we're just going to fall back in the same traps." And so, um, I think that 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 feedback loop happens in adaptive management in general, not just with the land treatment exploration tool, but as people see the value in in learning from in what Matt was calling the learning system, learning, um, not just keeping it local, went out and kicked in the dirt and I learned something, but, but actually really learning um, for, in a systematic way. I think that adaptive management will become more widely embraced. I think we've always talked about it. We learn about it and we talk about it, but we haven't really embraced it yet. But I think we're on the verge, given our access to data these days and our ability to do that tech transfer um, more effectively. I have a question about the certifier. Uh, so Matt pointed out that one of the reasons it worked is because we had all the people who were really dedicated and working hard on the project. But then there's also the financial component. And so I'm just wondering how much more it costs than business as usual if it did cost more than what the outlook is for being able to apply that sort of model everywhere where it's needed. Yeah. So the the total um, authorization for soda <clears throat> was sixty seven million dollars, um, but not that much was actually spent. So the the BLM and the USGS actually was um, we were very conscious and put a huge amount of effort into um, spending as little as possible. Actually, um, the monitoring bill came out to be about two million. Um, and I think that the treatments were on the order of maybe half to um, two-thirds of what was requested for the investment. Um, you know, the cost per plot now is on the order of like 75, um, do I have this right, $75 per plot or something? Um, and when you think about like how much it costs to do an, uh, is, is everybody familiar with AIM monitoring, the BLM's AIM? Okay. So our costs are quite a bit less than it costs to do a typical AIM plot. Um, so for the actual project implementation, um, 
I, I, you know, I think people, I, I've heard people say, I've heard the BLM, people in the BLM say they were really afraid of what we were doing as becoming like the new standard by which they would have to proceed in the future. Um, and in fact, we haven't observed that fires occurring after soda have adopted what we, what we did or even, you know, the, the key elements of it. Um, and yet, <clears throat> and people argue that it's just too expensive. But when I look at the dollars, it doesn't really add up. I mean, there have been fires that have occurred after soda that have been in the order of like tens or $20 million investments. Um, I don't know how much is being spent on monitoring and doing all, you know, the components of adaptive management um, on those. But my sense is um, not nearly as much as, as was spent on soda and not really that much on a, on a proportional basis. The real extra costs for us were in developing the whole um, enterprise. So there was, there was a lot of upfront steep costs that would no longer be required for any future uh, effort to emulate what we've done. So I don't have a direct answer for what you're asking, but does that kind of help give us some context for what the, what the answer might be? That's really, I mean, this does, you know, it's a socioeconomic problem. You know, we've talked a lot about environmental issues, but the real issue here with post-fire restoration, it really does boil down to human motivation and socioeconomic factors, right? So that, that question is really appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.